All right. Well, Matt, welcome to the Evidently Legal Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. So, you know, I'd love to learn uh, about you and you know, your practice, uh, and the type of work you do, how you're helping your clients today, and also sort of you as the, you know, business person, entrepreneur, law firm uh, owner, essentially working in the firm you are today. But why don't we start with, you know, a little bit about you, sort of uh, where, where did you go to school? How'd you end up where you are today? And then the type of work you're doing. Yeah. Uh, my favorite topic of discussion, like most lawyers is myself. Um, <laughs> so if I go on ad nauseum about this, please cut me off. But, um, you know, I'm in my fifth year of, uh, practicing law. Um, and I went to UC Davis for law school. I went to Boston university for my undergraduate where I studied journalism and, um, Really, I sort of fell into the practice of law um, by chance in a lot of ways. I um, went to law school not to become a lawyer, not with any interest in being in a courtroom, but to get a better education. Um, both my parents are lawyers, and I grew up understanding that having a legal mind was very useful in all aspects of life. And that's what I wanted. Uh, it wasn't until... Uh, going through the rigors of law school that I realized practicing law in and of itself is a very special thing that most people don't experience. It's a lot deeper, more complex. Um, it's an incredible thing, really a very powerful tool that you get an education for. And I thought, well, I'm not sure if I, if I'm really going to enjoy practicing law, but I should try it. Um, and I have an opportunity to practice law with my dad, Ray Boris. Um, who started the firm and uh, practiced long-term disability insurance law uh, his entire career, representing disabled individuals uh, and suing their insurance companies. So I thought this is a noble pursuit. Uh, got a great lawyer as a role model, an interesting experience to have. Let's give it a shot. And I did, and I loved it. Uh, and I realized why he devoted his whole career to this. I mean, these are really powerful cases uh, incredible clients. Um, and what you can do is their lawyer changes lives and that's what it's all about. That's what made me fall in love with practicing law. Yeah. I, it's amazing, right? Because you, like you said, you go to law school, maybe with not a particular outcome in mind and yeah, you've clearly kind of come into an area of law where you can tell you have a, a passion for it and the impact. You know, the type of practice and the type of law that, that you practice has on people's lives. I got to ask you, if you weren't a lawyer, you went to law school, maybe thinking about doing something else. If you weren't a lawyer, Matt, what would that have been? Oh man, what would I do if I weren't a lawyer? <laughs> I, I had originally intended to be a journalist, um, but I was so disillusioned with uh, you know, the way journalism is done in this, in this country uh, when I was going through my program at BU. Uh, ultra sensationalized, um, Really, it's more of an entertainment business than reporting on current events and what's going on in the world. I, I don't know if that would have been the right career for me, but I think that's probably the natural choice. Got it. Yeah. I mean, look, like you said, I mean, so there's some skills that maybe transfer over, right? In terms of being able to tell a, a story, be able to write clearly and communicate clearly. So um, I can see potentially a link there with, with where you've ended up. Um, let's talk a little bit about the work you do now, right? So you work in... I think primarily long-term disability and you talked a little bit about really, you know, the, the amazing clients that you have, 
what do those clients look like? What do, what do they, what do they come, what context do they come to you in? What are they dealing with typically? Yeah. Most of my clients, um, are high level professionals, uh, doctors, surgeons, dentists, um, presidents of companies, producers, directors. Uh, and the reason is because these are the type of individuals that tend to buy disability insurance. They have specialized skills. They usually have a high level of income. And so they seek protection for that by buying disability insurance. You know, in the event that I become disabled and I can't direct movies anymore or perform surgery anymore, uh, my whole career is up in smoke. Um, and so usually they get insurance for that. Okay. Now I'm protected. I'm disabled. I can't perform this career that I spent my entire life, uh, training for. Um, so my disability insurance company is going to pay me, uh, you know, because I've lost my career. Um, but of course the way it goes is that insurance companies don't honor, uh, their claims. They find some way to get out of it, uh, whether it's, uh, fine print in the policy or outright fraud where they, uh, just tell people that they're not disabled when they really are. And then they get out of paying the claim. Uh, they make things difficult. They create log jams They demand all this unnecessary paperwork. Uh, they malign you, they accuse you of exaggerating or malingering or uh, all kinds of things like that. And what they do is they try to discourage you from pursuing your claim. And most people naturally get fed up with it. If you're disabled, if you've got some horrible uh, disease like cancer or Parkinson's disease, um, you've got enough on your plate with, uh, you know, your own medical care, taking care of your family, got the loss of your career. You're trying to figure out what to do about that. Um, oftentimes these are people who, uh, have a lot of debt uh, from the education that they've gone through from a mortgage on their house, kids going to college. Um, you know, the last thing in the world that they want to deal with is this impossible insurance company that's saying, well, you need to give us this document and that document and cross all your T's and dot all your I's and submit to this, you know, investigation and this interview and this independent medical exam that it's going to require you to travel 80 miles you know, on the middle of a, a Wednesday, the whole process, as you can imagine, is, is a nightmare. And so most people just give up. They say, screw it. I'm not going to deal with this anymore. I, I can't. And, um, the ones who do, um, are the ones who contact me and they say, look, Matt, my insurance company has been jerking me around for months. This is not fair. I'm disabled. My doctors tell me I'm disabled. I can't work. I would love to be able to do what I'm doing. This is a total nightmare for me. My insurance company is saying that I'm, I'm not entitled to benefits. Help me out here. And, uh, that's where I step in and I, I get to represent them against their insurance company. And it's tremendous, tremendous honor. These are actually really compelling cases, despite the fact that it's insurance at the end of the day, which nobody finds very compelling <laughs> dry. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's what, that's what I love, you know, talking to folks like you who practice in these areas, right? Because you think about Oh, I do insurance, uh, insurance cases, long-term disability, whatever insurance it might be. Right. And on, on its face, it sounds like, all right, maybe not the most exciting, it's not entertainment law. Maybe it's not the most exciting thing in the world, but hearing the stories that, you know, the, the story that you just told about the types of clients you work with, what it means for them and for their lives, 
you know, this type of work is, is so impactful for people. Um, and I love hearing folks, you know, who are doing this type of work that maybe doesn't get the headlines that, you know, the Johnny Depp trial just got or something else just got, right? Um, you know, your clients, obviously they come to you in a, a moment of need. You know, how much have they dealt with up until that point already? It sounds like a lot of them will have been trying to go through this process on their own without the help of an attorney and have essentially kind of run into a wall or a roadblock. How much difficulty and their pain have they gone through by the time they actually come to you for help? I mean, some of them have gone through a lot. It's really inspiring uh, to see what they've been able to endure. Um, you know, I can think of one example off the top of my head where um, an individual came to me after almost two years of fighting with his insurance company. And, um, oh my God, I mean, it sends chills down my back thinking about this client. This was a guy who was, um, brilliant, brilliant doctor, um, top of his class throughout all of his schooling, um, uh, got this prestigious position at a hospital as a neuroradiologist. I didn't even know what a neuroradiologist was, by the way. But I thought, oh, radiology, okay, you know, he's interpreting images on an x-ray. This is not as impressive as something like being a neurosurgeon, uh, for example, where you've got a patient's lives in, in your hands. But I was wrong. Um, being a neuroradiologist is a really, really stressful, difficult occupation. I mean, you have got to be the cream of the crop in terms of your academic pedigree uh, to get this kind of a, a job, much less at a prestigious hospital, which is where he worked a brilliant, brilliant doctor and someone who worked right on the front lines, I mean, again, at a hospital. And so what would happen is patients would come in, um, with all kinds of enigmatic medical issues. Something is wrong with their brain. Something is wrong with their uh, neurology. They can't, uh, feel their fingertips anymore. They can't speak anymore. Uh, weird constellation of symptoms. And he's the one that has to figure it out in this ultra fast paced environment where, um, people need to decide, okay, are we going to perform brain surgery? Does this person have a tumor? Did they have a stroke? Do we need to open up their, their cranium and figure out what's going on here? I mean, really high stakes, um, environment. And he was the one that has to interpret all of these complex images of someone's brain and figure out, okay, where exactly is the problem stemming from? How do we map this out for the neurosurgeon so that I can communicate with him and tell him exactly where to perform surgery, what's going on in this patient's brain before he opens them up and then has to figure it out on his own because that's where problems happen. And so that's what this guy did for a living. He saved people's lives in the most complex kinds of cases. And, um, unfortunately that took a, a serious toll on his mental health. Uh, he had suicidal depression. He had obsessive compulsive disorder. He was working literally 20 hours per day, wow. not sleeping, couldn't leave the hospital. He would like, go into the elevator to leave the hospital. And before it would even reach the ground floor, he would think there's something else that I need to be looking at in this MRI. There's something else that I need to be evaluating in this case. And he would take the elevator right back up and continue working. He could not pull himself away from it. And this guy, um, had a colleague on him who died of a stroke in, in his fifties. And that was a real wake up call to him. That was a, a warning sign that it was, this job was really taking a serious toll 
on your physical health. This will be you. If you're not careful, you need to take some time off of work. And, um, so he did, uh, his psychiatrist said, you really need to be taking some time off of work to get this depression under control. And he filed a claim with his insurance company and they denied it. And they said, we don't think you're really disabled. Tell us why you can't be working. It sounds like you've got this pretty easygoing sedentary occupation where you just have to sit down and look at a computer. Tell me why this is so difficult, you know, for your mental health, toughen up. And, um, he fought them for years on this. He had his psychiatrist writing letters of support saying, this guy is clearly disabled. It's my professional recommendation that he take time off of work. He's tried to commit suicide over this. This is really serious. His colleagues all supported him taking time off of work. Everything pointed to the fact that he was disabled and the insurance company just wouldn't budge. They wouldn't do anything about it. And, um, I don't know how he was able to manage everything that was going on in his life until he contacted me, but, but he did. And, um, that's the kind of perseverance that all of my clients have in one way or another. And it's incredible. Uh, they all have a different story. They've all got something else going on, but the common thread with all of them is perseverance and it's incredible. Yeah. I mean, something, you, you know, in hearing that story really struck me really particularly around the, the mental health side of things. Obviously, a physical disability manifests relatively clearly. Mental health is a different story, though, right? I know there's been a, a big push in recent years to really put an emphasis on mental health for people. Do you see insurance companies sort of a bit behind the curve on that? Are those cases typically harder than others? Maybe that's not the right phrasing, but how are those mental health cases approached in, in the normal course? Yeah, they are. I mean... uh you know, if you operate from the assumption that insurance companies are trying to find a way to deny your claim, then it's obvious, as you pointed out, that it's easier to deny claims when you've got sort of a latent uh, disability. You can't really see someone's mental health problems. It doesn't usually manifest itself in physical symptoms. And so it's easy for them to just deny it. Say, well, we can't see it. There's no objective proof that you have this disability. Um, and so, yeah, it's easier for them to deny these claims. It's quite common. Yeah. You know, and every, every client has their own story, right? I mean, obviously you just told a, a particularly moving one here. Um, you know, a client with a disability is going to come to you with maybe a different context and a different story. You know, how much of, of your job requires you to be not just a good lawyer from a legal perspective, but being agile in the sense of dealing with different types of people? different types of circumstances they come to you with. Yeah, that to me, I think is the biggest part of my job. Um, providing exceptional legal services is, uh, crucial, obviously. I mean, these are complex cases. These are hard fought cases. Um, but ultimately what I think makes this practice area unique is that I'm representing a real human being who's suffering, um, who's dealing with really serious problems, not just because of the insurance dispute, which is a big problem in and of itself, but because of their own personal health declining, um, because, uh, their financial livelihood is hanging by a thread, uh, because the livelihood of their children is at stake, um, because their partner 
is scared about what the future is going to be. You know, they're worried that their partner might die soon, uh, that the bread maker is, is going to be gone, that the insurance company is not going to pay any benefits. What are they going to do? I mean, these are really serious issues on all fronts. And, um, my job as a lawyer is to fix the insurance issue first and foremost, but to be there for my clients to make sure that they have an advocate in their corner that's going to stand up and fight for them as hard as possible. Um, that's what they really need because they're going through some really, really tough stuff. And it means the world to them to have somebody who really cares about them, who wants them to get better. And ultimately who's going to be able to um, change their life. Um, I, that to me is what my law practice is all about. Um, it's the greatest privilege of my career. Um, it means everything to me. Um, and you know, the, the sad thing about it is that a lot of lawyers don't operate like that. I remember when I first started out, it was one of the biggest challenges for me. You know, I had some president of a group of anesthesiologists call me and he said, I've got you know, cancer. Um, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but my whole life has been turned upside down and I need your help. And I thought, oh my God, what am I going to do about this? Um, and, uh, I couldn't sleep. Uh, I was constantly thinking about the case. I was worried sick about him. I really cared about, about him as an individual and his family. And, um, you know, I talked to my dad about this and how do you, how do you deal with this, this kind of issue? Um, put me in touch with, um, a lawyer colleague of his, and he said, you need to really separate yourself from the clients. Um, that's what you have to do. You can't get emotionally invested in their life. You can't control what's going to happen in their life. Your job is just to focus on winning their case. Um, and I thought about it like a really long time, um, and ultimately decided that he was wrong. Um, you know, my client didn't need some lawyer that was just going to win his case, distribute the money and then, and then be gone. He needed someone that really cared. Um, because if I don't care and love my client, then how could I expect a jury to care and love my client? Um, there's a human element to the practice of law that I think is far more powerful than anything else. Yeah, I mean, I would agree, right? And I think, you know, again, when people think about the law as a profession, they think about, you know, pen and paper, they think about rules, they think about regulations, they think about, you know, verdicts and other things that seem sort of mechanical and rote, right? There is a law, you're either on the right side of it or the wrong side of it, I think is it's a sort of very kind of you know, dumbed down version of what maybe a lot of folks think about, you know, the practice of law. But you know, as you're aptly explaining, as we talk to folks across different practice areas, th there's so much underneath the practice of law that really has a big human element to it, not only in terms of your life as an attorney, how it impacts you, but the work that you do, how it impacts the client, but even broadly in the client's circle, right? How it impacts their work, how it impacts their family. And, you know, it's, I, I would agree with you. It's really, I, I would find it really hard and I have found it hard to separate the legal from uh, the person as well. If you're going to deliver a client service that has, you know, your client front and center and treating them as a person, I would find it extraordinarily difficult to be able to completely 
divorce yourself from that and, and separate the two. You know, I think for, for you, obviously, you know, you've, you've done that quite well. You know, if you were to maybe coach or, or give someone who practices in an area like yours where, you know, there is some really heavy contact that comes to each case. People are dealing with really difficult circumstances. And what do you think that the key for you uh, to success has been in managing the legal work and then the human side of it? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, it's something that I've, I've struggled with. Um, I think there's no way around the burden of the human element in these kinds of cases. If you are going to represent people with serious issues, um, you're going to shoulder a lot of that burden too. Um, I think therapy is really helpful. <laughs> I'm a big proponent of that. I don't think I'd be able to manage it without some, some help. Um, and I think it takes practice. You know, this is why they call it a legal practice. Um, you have to hone your skills, uh, not just as a advocate and a, uh, professional, but as a human being, uh, empathy, I think is a, a skill that requires practice managing your emotional involvement, uh, with a client takes practice, um, managing, you know, how you react to losses is a practice. Um, this year I had two clients who died, um, both of them of cancer. Um, wow. There's nothing that someone can tell you about how to deal with that situation. It's something that you have to experience and practice, um, you know, how to respond in a healthy way. Um, I think that practice of law is quite similar to the practice of medicine in that respect. You can do your absolute best as a doctor to save a patient's life, to cure their maladies. And sometimes uh, the patient's just going to die on you. Sometimes uh, you can't stop them from being sick or being in pain. And that's difficult. Um, as a doctor, it's difficult as a lawyer to accept the fact that your powers are limited. Um, but I think that if you practice ways to accept that, uh, to be satisfied with the way that you are conducting yourself and uh, representing your clients, uh, then you can manage it and you could manage to have a very fulfilling, happy career doing what you do, even though it's, it's heavy. It can be done. Yeah. You know, it, it, it seems like particularly, you know, the way you've described it, right? There can be such a, a range of outcomes or end stories to the types of work and types of cases that you do, right? And so I think, you know, there are, are a lot of different ways you can define success. Right? One is, you know, a great outcome, obviously, for your client. That's sort of a very kind of clean success story. Another is, you know, maybe providing a great, you know, great client service to your client. How do you define success in, in your practice with the clients that you work with? I define success as, have I changed their life for the better? Um, you know, this was a tough one for me too. Um, I tend to be outcome driven. Uh, I used to sort of define success as winning their case 
getting the maximum recovery. Um, no prisoners. <laughs> and um, yes, that's important. Um, but at the same time, ultimately, there are other elements that come into what makes a case successful. Um, what I mean by that is, you know, you've got a client whose life is falling apart in all respects. And um, you can solve this narrow problem of their insurance dispute and get the money. That helps. But the difference between a $1.5 million settlement and a $2.5 million settlement, it's a lot of money, sure. But is one really more successful than the other if you're going to be sacrificing other intangible um, assets to achieve the $2.5 million settlement? I don't think so. I think that lawyers sometimes look at these issues sort of myopically and they say success is determined simply by the value of the settlement that you get, by the amount of money that you get for the client. The more money you get for them, the more successful you are. But they often overlook the fact that in order to get more money, sometimes you're sacrificing other things. Sometimes you're dragging your client through an additional year of litigation. You're stressing them out. Their whole family is, is scared and worried. They've had to live on borrowed time um, and go deeper and deeper into debt. So you've got an entire year of misery for this client out of what? How long are they going to live? Maybe 80 years. And, you know, I, I think that people underestimate how valuable people's time is. Um, and so to me, defining success is about respecting both the money that you want to get for your client, but also their time, their peace of mind, their stress, their happiness. And the most successful cases that I've had are the ones, not where I've gotten the most amount of money per se, but the ones where we can close the chapter at the right time in their life. And we say, look, this dispute is over. We've gotten you a lot of money and you're going to finally be able to move on from this. Those are the times where the client will tell me, I'm so happy. I'm so relieved to finally put this behind me. Um, that to me is the most successful feeling of all. I, I love the way you put that, right? Because it, it goes, it goes so far beyond just the verdict form, right? The, the end result of the case, a number that comes out of it. And it really goes, speaks to, you know, an outcome that maps to the context that your client comes to you with, where they are in their life how they want things to unfold for, for them. I, I love the way you put that, you know, I, how much of that, you know, getting to that type of outcome stems from, you know, communication with your client. I mean, communication obviously with every client is important, but, you know, getting to that kind of definition of success in each case, you know, I would imagine it, it takes a lot of communication between you and your clients. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. I mean, communication is a huge part my practice. Um, and that's one of the nice things about having a small firm is that you can really be available for your clients. You could have these really close uh, relationships with your clients. You can communicate with them, um, frequently. Um, you know, some people say that, uh, I don't separate work, uh, very well in my life because I'll take calls with clients at 8 PM on a weekend. But, um, 
you know, it's, it's huge. It means so much to them. It means so much to me that we've got those kinds of relationships. We stay in constant contact. I'm available anytime that they want to talk to me. Um, that's what I would want if I needed a lawyer. And that's what I want to provide, uh, to my clients. Um, not just on a personal level, because I think it's, you know, the right way to, to represent someone, but because I think that there's some efficacy to doing that as well. Like you mentioned, you know, what role does communication play in actually achieving success in your cases? I mean, it's huge. Yeah. It's a dynamic case. Things often change in their life. Um, and you have to stay on top of it. You have to know what's going on with their family life. You have to know what's going on with their career. You have to know what's going on with your health. I mean, these things can change dramatically at a moment's notice. And so staying in constant contact with them and communicating about it is key to being able to assess, okay, how do we define success now that my client's health is taken a turn for the worse? How do we now define success now that my client's health is taken a turn for the better? Um, communication is crucial. Yeah. It's sort of an, an ever shifting landscape for you. It sounds like particularly given when, when you have people dealing with medical issues and circumstances in their lives that, that can change so quickly and so drastically. Um, you know, I know you said most of your clients are, are professionals of some sort. So, you know, doctors, dentists, other folks with, with similar professions. Where, where do most of your clientele come from? Is it, is it generally sort of word of mouth for you referrals or how do you, how do you sort of meet folks who are in need of, of your legal services from a, a business perspective? Yeah, it's both. Um, word of mouth is huge. Um, you know, we get referrals from other lawyers, um, who know that we specialize in long-term disability insurance. It's a niche practice. Um, you know, not many people specialize in long-term disability insurance, bad faith cases. And so we're one of the few that other lawyers know, uh, will do a good job on the case. And so they'll refer us these, these cases, um, referrals from other clients of mine are also huge. Uh, again, you know, most of them are high level professionals, mostly doctors. And so they talk, you know, um, the rest tends to come from Google. Uh, Google is a, a huge tool that we use for marketing, uh, for showing clients, you know, what we are all about, but we, you know, market on all fronts too. I mean, you kind of have to this, this day and age. I mean, there's lawyer directories online, like super lawyers and fine law and avo, you know, you want your law firm to be on those platforms. We also have a book, uh, you know, which we market. And when we go to conventions and things like that, to tell people what, you know, this area of the law is like, and to tell some of these stories uh, about what happens to our clients. Um, and then you've got everything else. I mean, Bing, and I mentioned Google already, you've got the social media marketing, like Facebook, Instagram. I should be making a TikTok, although I'm uh, <laughs> reluctant to do so for obvious reasons, I think. Sure. Um, you know, this is marketing in 2022. Yeah, it's a, it's a totally different world, isn't it? Right. I mean, there's sort of an endless, you know, number of places that you can and maybe should show up depending upon where where people might find you. You know, in terms of your, I mean, your you say your practice is, is a, a niche practice, um, you know, how did you, how did you folks think about sort of a, a niche practice versus maybe a, a broader practice dealing with a broader set of disability type claims or, or frankly, other areas of law? You know, how has being a niche practice in your mind, at least 
you know, helped your firm from a, a business and growth perspective? Well, specialty is key. Um, I think it's uh, true in law. I think it's true in other professions. Uh, you know, for example, if um, if I got um, bladder cancer, um, I wouldn't just want to see a general oncologist. I would want to see somebody who is specializing in bladder cancer. Um, I would feel safer uh, to see that kind of a professional. The same thing is true of the law. My clients, you know, don't just want to go to a contract attorney. Uh, they don't want to just go to a plaintiff's attorney. They want to go to someone who specializes in these long-term disability insurance policies. Um, much in the same way that other practice areas, you know, would benefit specialization. You know, if you are uh, practicing in um, uh, personal injury law, you know, perhaps specializing in dog bite cases would be a good way of carving out a successful practice for yourself. Because if you've got a child that was bit by a dog, I think that you would feel much safer hiring an attorney that specializes in dog bite cases and knows the unique issues to that kind of personal injury case than somebody who does products liability, premise liability, automobile cases, and dog bite cases. So I think specialization is good from, I guess, a marketing perspective, good from a professional perspective. Um, the other side of that, of course, is I want to make a big splash. I want to have a big impact on the law in California. I want to represent everybody. I want to represent people who are victims of disability discrimination. I want to represent people who have been injured uh, in accidents. I want to represent people who have been injured in medical malpractice issues. I want to help everybody who's dealing with issues, uh, you know, that, that I find interesting and, and, uh, you know, that need my help. So there's a, a balancing act that needs to take place and, uh, um, you know, can't bite off more than you can chew, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I think if you know, one of the things that, you know, is sort of interesting when you think about, you know, which area of, of law to go into, right? I mean, there obviously there's a lot of different ways you can be a practicing lawyer. Some folks are generalists. Some folks are specialists working uh, niche practices. If, if you were to advise somebody who was maybe trying to figure out what niche to go into, right? As, as being somebody who practices in a niche area, you know, sort of the volume and the type of case flow that comes through. You know, what are some of the characteristics you might tell folks to look at, right? I would imagine, number one, you got to figure out not only is it a niche area of law, but do significant number of people or enough people to sustain your practice need that type of legal help? Um, but are there other things that you would tell folks to look at if they were to start to try to figure out what niche to practice in from scratch? You know, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, my dad always told me, uh, if you do what you love, the money will follow. And I believe that's true. And I think that in 2022, um, it's even more true than ever. Um, I mean, you see it on social media. It's crazy. People carve out a job out of nothing. You know, you, you, you like to do pranks or dancing and things like that. <laughs> Who's going to pay you to do that? Now people will get really rich doing that. Um, and so anything that you find interesting, anything that you are passionate about, I think that you can make a law practice out of it and be very successful. Um, 
So I wouldn't be discouraged if you're looking at a practice of law um, and thinking, ah, this isn't very popular. This isn't very lucrative. Um, this is not sort of the traditional route that people take in terms of carving out a niche. Just go for it. Make it your own. Pursue your passion. I think that generally speaking, good things will follow if you do that. Yeah, look, I think it's great advice, particularly in, in, you know, legal, like you said, I mean, there, there are so many different areas you can carve out. And I, I actually believe there are a lot of untapped areas where, you know, you really could niche down and, and find a specific area that, you know, really interests you. And, and over time, I think there's gonna be enough, you know, legal work there. You know, your work, obviously, you know, you work, you practice long-term disability. Um, you know, you have kind of a, it sounds like a diversified way of growing your practice. It's you've got, you know, referrals, word of mouth, you do a bit of marketing. Do you think at all around how to, how to balance that diversification? I mean, what is, what does it look like for you and your firm in terms of where most of your you know, new work comes from referrals versus marketing or other types of things? Yeah, this, I think, you know, considering all the other stresses of my practice area, this is the one that's really making me lose my hair. Um, <laughs> I'm not kidding. Um, marketing to me is very challenging as a business owner. Um, it's very difficult because it's multifaceted. Um, there is not necessarily one right way to do it. There's a lot of different ways that you could approach marketing. There's no clear answer. And a lot of the folks that specialize in marketing speak an entirely different language than me. You know, when I sit down to talk about, uh, my Google ad campaigns or my SEO, um, most of it goes over my head. And so for me to assess as a business owner, how much money should I be investing in SEO? How much money should I be investing in my Google ad campaign? How much money should I be investing in LinkedIn advertising or Facebook advertising? It's difficult. You have to do it somewhat blindly in a lot of ways, or at least trusting somebody who's an expert in the field and trusting that they know that they're going to be doing the right thing. The results are often um, uh, things that take a long time. Uh, you know, you might invest in SEO and not see an uptick in your bottom line for six months or a year. Um, so it's a risky business too. Um, I, I find it very difficult to navigate, frankly. Um, and you need to guard uh, your investments too. You know, if you have a small firm, you're dealing with limited resources when it comes to advertising. So I think that, uh, you know, spending your money, investing it in marketing is crucial. You have to do that, especially, you know, with Google and things like that. And it's expensive. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, there's no substitution for getting out there, hustling, uh, making sure that other lawyers know who you are, know what your practice area is, and ultimately, uh, doing a good job in your cases have to do a good job in your cases. You have to do right by your clients. Everything else in terms of marketing will flow from there. Um, but you just got to hustle. That's the end of the day. Yeah. Now, like you said, I mean, there are so many, so many different ways you can go about it, right? Like you said, I mean, we, we've talked to some folks who go in and they practice in a more local area and they go and they meet local business owners, right? You walk into the, the local barbershop or, you know, wherever you may be and, and you start to get your name out there and other folks who, who do a lot of it through digital marketing and other means. There are so many different ways, as you said, sort of skin this cat in terms of, you know, law firm growth. 
how important is, is data to you when you think about growth and marketing, right? I mean, do you folks sort of think about the data in terms of investment versus, you know, what actually is, is giving you the best return? Because there's a couple of ways to think about it, right? One way to think about it is an investment that comes back with a tangible return. I invested X dollars into, you know, this campaign or this activity, and I got X number of cases, which resulted in X number of revenue. But there are other types of, of marketing as well, which maybe are a little bit more amorphous, right? Like maybe you spend some time getting your own name out there through, you know, LinkedIn posting or going to other events where it's a time investment. It's an investment I think you, you ought to be accounting for, but maybe it doesn't have quite as tangible an outcome. How do you think about the, the role of data and the way you, you know, grow your business? Yeah, data is a tricky one. Um, I think the data is, of course, important. Um, you have to look at the analytics. They will tell you a lot about whether your dollar is being well spent. Um, for example, uh, Google Analytics provides you a ton of data on what your ad spend is actually producing in terms of traffic, in terms of clicks, in terms of conversions, in terms of all these things. Um, I think that there can also be some pitfalls in relying too much on data. And the reason is because it's multifaceted. So for example, if I'm investing you know, an additional $4,000 in my Google ad spend uh, in the month of October. But then I'm also investing an additional $2,000 in my Bing ad spend. And then at the end of October, I see an uptick in clients. I'm thinking, oh, okay, this is a successful, uh, you know, investment. The data shows that my investment has produced more clients. Um, but I think that there's something missing from that equation too, which is, okay, well, how do you know that the client actually came from Bing? How do you know that the client came from Google? How do you know that the client didn't come from, you know, a conference that you attended where somebody saw your business card and then they went to your website and then they found you. Um, I think that if you go through with a fine tooth comb and you do things like set up call tracking numbers where you have a different phone number for different advertising campaigns then you could learn a lot from the, the data. But I think that data can also sort of give you the wrong impression about what is successful in your marketing investments. Um, yeah, I, as well, it's a great point, right? Because unless you can track it from fir almost first contact to, you know, your fir contacting your firm to sign client, there, there's a break and there's a disconnect in between. And like you said, if you're, if you're out in the market in particular, doing a variety of different things, um, in terms of getting your name out there and, and spreading the word about your firm. They could have come from any one of those sources or maybe another source that you weren't actually even aware of where they found you. Um, you know, look, just talking about obviously the, the work that you do from a legal perspective, you know, sounds incredibly difficult, incredibly rewarding, but, you know, a huge job in and of itself. Talking about the business side of things, right? Thinking about things like marketing, you know, growing your firm, you know, building out your practice is also sort of a second job, right? I mean, you're, you're an entrepreneur uh, and a business owner on, on top of that. You know, what, what to you has been from a, a, the business side of things or the most rewarding part of, you know, having your own practice? You know, that's such a great question because there are two things that I think fit my model of success. First one I mentioned earlier in the podcast is changing my clients' lives. That to me is a huge metric of success. But 
think equally as important is changing the lives of the people that I work with. Um, we spend a majority of our lives working. Um, I think that second to sleeping, it's what we spend most of our time doing. And, um, I think it's the greatest thing in the world to be able to provide a workspace where people are happy. They're happy about working. They're proud of the work that they're doing. They enjoy the people that they work with, not just uh, the clients, but also their, uh, their coworkers. Um, that to me is so important. And so when it comes to, okay, you know, what exactly do I want to do from an employment perspective? What do I want to do from a work satisfaction perspective? Um, as an entrepreneur, I think that what's most exciting is being able to generate revenue and decide what to do with that in a way that's going to promote the happiness and success of the people that I work with. Uh, you know, I'm the business owner. Um, it's a great position to be in because I'm in control of my own financial success in a lot of respects. Um, I'm in control of what direction I want to take my career. I could pursue my interests. You know, if I wanted to go practice um, landlord tenant law, I could do that. I could just invest the money into marketing for landlord tenant law and sign up those cases and spend my time doing that. If I wanted to um, uh, do something else with my own career, with my time at work, I could do that. That's the privilege of owning your own business. But I think that it's also important to recognize that the people that you work with, your employees, um, deserve the same kind of satisfaction out of work. They deserve the same kind of liberty of being able to pursue what they find interesting, what they find fulfilling. It's your life. You're spending all this time working. You might as well have the right to be able to pursue what you think is going to be personally uh, fulfilling. And so that's, to me, one of the greatest things about having a small law firm is I could consult with you know, my law partner, I could consult with my paralegal and I could say, Hey, look guys, what's the work that you really enjoy doing? My law partner, for example, uh, Rita Gantumas said that she was interested in doing PI cases. And, um, I said, great, let's do it. We'll create uh, a new corporate entity. We'll create another law firm, Golden Gate Legal, and we'll market that for personal injury cases. And you can take those kinds of cases. It's awesome. Um, I've got another, uh, a friend of mine. Um, who doesn't work for the firm right now, but will probably be joining in the new year. And he says, you know, I love that you sue insurance companies. I love that you represent disabled people. I would certainly like to do that. I would also love to have my own firm one day and be able to do things like police brutality cases. You know, that's great. Why don't you do that? You come join the firm, could do the insurance cases with me. And then we could also create, you know, another corporate entity and market that for police brutality cases, and you could start representing people like that too. Um, that to me is a metric of success when it comes to being a business owner, which is I'm going to create a space where people could pursue the things that they're interested in. People could work on the things that they want to work on. You're not just trapped. You don't have to sit in a cubicle and work on the, uh, you know, uh, annoying case that comes across your desk and you get no say in the matter. Um, and the same thing is true of my, my staff. It's true of my paralegal too. You know, what are the things that you find really interesting? You know, she really loves being able to support uh, the attorneys at the firm. Honestly, uh, it's not something that I would personally enjoy doing, but uh, she really does. Uh, she likes being sort of the, um, you know, the background cast that makes the whole show come to life. And what are the tools that you want to do that? Oh, there's this 
uh, legal uh, law toolbox program that I think would be really useful for me. Um, you know, I would appreciate it if you would take care of, uh, you know, these aspects, if you would communicate with me in, in this respect so that I could, you know, do things that I find, you know, more interesting with my time. You know, so it's like this dynamic work environment where it's like, okay, this is the kind of work life that you like to have. I can support that as well. That to me is so important, so gratifying. And it's something that's really exciting about the future of the firm too, to be able to create that space where people pursue their own interests. Yeah, I love that, right? I mean, and it just sort of goes to show that, you know, being a, there, there's multiple aspects to being a lawyer in today's day and age, particularly if you, if you run your own practice and, and you have your own firm, right? There's one, maybe one definition of success in terms of how you work with your clients and what it means for them and what it means for you on the legal side. But there's other successes that you want to have from a business side, both personally and for your team. And, you know, I, your, your, your mindset and, and your viewpoint is, is for, frankly just fantastic. And, you know, again, I think one of the things that, that folks I think ought to keep in mind from this is, you know, I think they, they infect each other, right? In the sense that creating a firm where you really have the best interest of your employees in mind, they can carve out a space that is meaningful to them will undoubtedly impact the type of work that's being delivered to clients as well. And you start to get this, you know, fortuitous cycle where they start to feed on each other if you have the right mindset on both sides. And I, I can tell you, dude, just, just from talking to you about it. Thanks. Um, so the rewarding side, obviously, very clear. Um, on the business side, biggest challenges for you? Maybe it's marketing, I don't know, but biggest challenges, any sort of hair on fire, one thing, if you had a magic wand, you would love to solve if, if you could that come to mind for you. Oh God, where do I start? <laughs> uh oh, the list of marketing, the marketing for sure is uh, a source <laughs> of frustration. Um, you know, um, I think that from the business side, one of the most frustrating, difficult things for me is managing expert witnesses, um, managing um, you know, how much, you know, they need to work, how much, you know, they need to spend, um, to develop their expert reports that can get really expensive. It can get really out of hand if you're not micromanaging. I'm not a huge fan of micromanaging people, but you kind of have to do it. Um, you have to be protective of your, of your case. You have to be protective of your client's money. Um, that could be a source of frustration when you get a big bill from an expert witness and you say, well, why does it have to be this expensive? You know, why couldn't we just, uh, you know, do this more efficiently? Um, mediation is a source of frustration from both a business and a, um, a litigation perspective. On the one hand, you've got a mediator who's going to be charging you a lot of money to mediate the case. And so you want to make sure that it's going to be productive. Um, I think a lot of times mediators can be, um, unprepared, um, not particularly productive, frankly, sometimes kind of lazy. You put in a ton of time working up this case, writing a brief, and then you go to mediation and it seems like the mediator hasn't even read the brief and doesn't understand the case. And you just spend an hour, two hours educating them on, on what the case is all about. Um, that could be very frustrating to me as well. Um, but I think the solution is working with reputable mediators, good mediators that you actually like. Don't just let the defense select the mediator and, and, and be idle about it. Um, um, you managing those costs too, 
uh, you know, it's one thing if the mediator is not going to be productive and another thing, if the other party is not going to be productive in mediation, that often happens. So you show up to mediation, you've got a million dollar case. Um, it's an early mediation, let's say, and you're ready to settle. Okay. You're ready to negotiate. And the other side shows up and then, you know, after five hours, they say, oh, we don't have authority to go over $250,000 to settle this case today. What are we doing here? <laughs> Where's the person with authorities? You know, I think the difference between a mediation and a settlement conference is that sometimes the judge will order that the other, you know, that both parties have a client representative there with full settlement authority in the case. You know, you have to be proactive and make sure that that's the case when you go to mediation as well. Otherwise you're going to get yourself into a position where you're not only wasting your time, but you're wasting your client's time. Um, so that's, that's crucial too. Those could be frustrating situations. Generally anything that involves wasting your time or wasting your money, I find it immensely frustrating. <laughs> as, as would most, as do I exactly as, as would most. Um, well, look, Matt, Matt it's been, uh, fantastic to hear about you, your practice, the really impactful work you do for your clients and really the way you approach the practice of law, right? I mean, we talked a lot about, you know, not just doing great legal work, which, which you have to do, but really sort of seeing and understanding, you know, the human side of the practice of law, because in the end, it, it is a people business. You're not just filing briefs. You're not just making arguments. You're dealing with, with people who have not just a legal issue, but a life issue. It's been amazing to hear how you approach that from uh, the, the law perspective. But on the business side as well, I mean, the e equally uh, great a mindset in terms of how you approach growth to your practice, how you approach you know, giving folks you work with you know, the opportunities to pursue their passions. It's been, I think, really great to hear. I think folks who you know, maybe want to start their own practice uh, or grow their own practice you know, can take really a lot away from, you know, what you helped us to describe today in terms of how you, how you do things. Um, you know, I, I, I like to end with two questions that we ask everybody, one, the lighthearted one, and one is sort of a forward looking one. Um, so on, on the lighthearted side, do you have a favorite movie of all time? Yeah. The Lord of the Rings trilogy. Far okay. Hands down. I got it. So where, where do you stand on the, the new show? If you've watched it yet, that has come out the, uh, the new Lord of the Rings. I've been hearing mixed things. I have too. <laughs> Um, I've been it's looking closely at the reviews and I have not watched it because I'm afraid that it's going to tarnish a very beautiful thing. Um, I love the Lord of the Rings and I would hate to see, uh, something ruin that. So I'll wait until the reviews become a little more positive and then maybe I'll give it a shot. Fair, fair strategy on that one. Um, all right. La last question. If, if folks could remember one thing about you and your firm, what would you want that to be? I would want people to know that you can do good work. You could represent people who have heavy issues uh, and make a positive impact in their life. You can create a culture at work where you're happy and fulfilled, where your employees and law partners are happy and fulfilled. And you could do it in a way that's really profitable. You could have it all. Um, and believe me, if I could do it, anyone could do it. You just got to take a step. You just got to take a little bit of risk. I think it's totally worth it. Well, with that, Matt, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. Again, it's been great talking with you and we appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you, Brian. It's really been uh, 
been a pleasure. <laughs>